Hello, and welcome to Oh God, What Now?, where we take the temperature of a country so very sensible that it's been debating whether or not a Scotch egg counts as a substantial meal. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor is the editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. I hate Scotch eggs. Is it okay to hate Scotch eggs? No, it's not. It's simply objectively incorrect. <laughs> it's unpatriotic. <laughs> <laughs> I just hate eggs. I, I just can't. St- I can't stand them. Scotch or not? Well, no pubs for you. Um, <laughs> this morning we woke to the uplifting news: the UK has become the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer COVID vaccine. It'll be rolling it out next week. Ros, how will that change the government's economic policy? Their kind of crisis management. In the short term, not that much, because it will be some time before enough of us are vaccinated to have sufficient immunity to ease up, basically. And that will be April at the earliest, I would say. So really, the government is counting on another four or five months at least of having to prop up the economy. And you did a recent Bunker Daily with Heidi Larson from the Vaccine Confidence Project. And what did she tell you about the best way to persuade sceptics to get an armful of Pfizer juice? Yeah, she's a very gentle person, very understanding. And she basically, she's saying, don't call people anti-vaxxers. Don't use terms like herd immunity, use community immunity, focus on people's concerns and worries. Don't call them ignorant. And when they have questions, don't attack them for asking questions about the vaccine. Answer those questions because they do have a right to ask them. And she's also anti-making vaccines compulsory as well. I think some countries will probably make them compulsory or de facto compulsory, but that's not her approach. I suspect the main focus of anti-vaccine misinformation right now will be the fact that this new vaccine, the, the one that's just been approved, the Pfizer one, is a different kind of vaccine. It is a new kind of jab that uses part of the virus's genetic code to do what it does. And that fact will be used to, to sow suspicion in people when the time comes, as it will, that, that, that it, the misinformation starts flowing. I wrote a, a light-hearted piece about uh, conspiracy theories and pop stars uh, over the weekend, and uh, I, thought... I got some. I tell you, I got some pretty lively replies. Um, <laughs> I'm not. Su- I'm not sure how much sensible conversation will be possible with 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 some of these people. But then Bill Gates paid me to say that. <laughs> Ian Dunt is editor at large at Politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello. Does this new title mean you have to do all your editing on the run now? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I always thought it sounded kind of, you know, mysterious and sexy when someone was, you know, had like something at large in their in their thing as if like they were having like a cocktail in a hotel lounge and, you know, in an exotic country. And, I, and so really part of the criteria of those negotiations were like, I don't really care what else happens with this job. But the, the really important thing is that I get to be called editor at large. So, yeah, I, mean, I, got, I got what I needed there. Yeah, it worked out really <laughs> well. And I'm now sipping a martini in a hotel bar as I say this. <laughs> um, eating a Scotch egg. On the, <laughs> <laughs> on the um, vaccine, Mog and other Brexiters have tried to push the angle that if, it, if, uh, if we weren't leaving the EU, then there's no way this vaccine could have been uh, approved quickly. Is this uh, an honest account of events? No, no, it isn't. So, and you know, it was refuted. Literally, it was like seconds after they were saying it. People were quite good at knowing that when they're going to start talking nonsense. So look, we're still in the transition period. We still fall under EU rules for biotechnological medicines. um, And that's still licensed by the uh, European Medicines Agency. 
There is, however, and has always been, an ability for national regulators to issue a temporary authorization for unlicensed medicines. If there's a compelling public health case, that manifestly is in this case, and that is exactly what has happened. So it's got absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. So, of course, you fall into... The first, the first wave of, of your reaction to this is just this... Just the fucking... Because, you know, there was like an hour, probably 45 minutes, where it was like, oh, fuck, there's a good thing. You know, there's like an unalloyed good thing that's happening. You know, we all get to feel optimism. And then <laughs> instantly, of course, it's just like, uh-uh, would you like some fucking pernicious lying tribalism to go with your optimism? It's like, no, no, I don't. I don't fucking want that. I don't want you to talk about Brexit right now, and especially don't want you to fucking lie about it. But, of course, off they did. Uh, there is a sort of, uh, and you know, some of them, like Nadine Dorridge, is, is just a fucking moron, right? She probably doesn't even know. Matt Hancock knows what he's saying. Like, he knows it's false, right? And he's saying it anyway. And there is, like, a kind of a more serious thing that beyond, you know, ruining our quite nice special day, which is that you do need trust, you know, which speaks to the, the stuff that Roz was just talking about. You need trust in this area. You need reliable public messaging when it comes to this vaccine for reasons of public health. You need that. So to go into it, to announce it, wrapped up in this bow of shite that they have produced, of this mewling, mendacious, scheming shite, you just think, like, really just have some fucking responsibility for once in your lives. On the subject of Brexit, the Mail has reported that expats are bloody furious about new regulations, uh, saying they will only be able to stay in their second homes in the EU without a visa for 90 days out of every six months. Um, obviously, the, the second home people uh, are close to all our hearts. Is this rule new or is it in fact what was always going to happen? And are we going to have lots of stories of people being outraged by inevitable consequences? Um, I mean, first of all, no, these are not uh, new rules. Just like when people say new rules coming in mean that we're going to check customs at the border. When it's like it's not new rules, they're fucking old. You know, the thing is that we're, we're now dismantling them. I also don't feel very badly about people with two homes, one of which is in Spain or whatever, because I just think... I want fucking two homes and I want one of them to be in Spain. You know, I don't want it to be here. I want a fucking house in Spain. That is exactly what I want. I sort of quite, quite like and admire people's aspirations with us. That makes complete sense to me. If you live in what is, you know, a very nice, but also really quite a cold and rainy gray Island. It, it makes complete sense. There's a real, um, we also, by the way, have to remember that most Brits living in Europe did not vote for Brexit. You know, when you talk to sort of Brits, um, Brits in Europe, the group, they would say, we have this idea of this kind of, you know, reactionary, grumpy, you know, on the Costa del Sol, or whatever. But in fact, lots of people are really young Brits working. That they've been completely fucked by the fact that freedom of movement isn't continuing for them once uh, this period ends. So, so there's lots of problems there. But there's also just what are we going to do? You know, like, I mean, we're coming into a period now where things are about to start having practical implications. And a lot of what I see from Remainers Online, many of whom I'm really friendly with, are just saying, well, fuck you, you know, you fucked it and you've been, you know, you're an idiot. And, and you just think, please don't do that. Like, that is just the worst possible response that you can have right now. And it's, it's a response that's all about making yourself feel better, but not about actually trying to progress a movement that gets us towards having a closer relationship with and eventually membership of the EU, because the quickest way to do that is to be open and generous to people when they have misgivings about what's going on. You're a better man than me, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> You've never said that before, and frankly, it disturbs me. An even better man, our guest this week, is Giles Wattel, World Affairs Editor at Tortoise Media, formerly of The Times, where he was a correspondent in both Washington and Moscow, and author of several books, including Bridge of Spies, the unofficial inspiration for Steven Spielberg's 2015 film of the same name. 
Hi, Charles. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's very nice to be here. Can I just say a word for pickled eggs? I, the last time I had an egg in a pub, it was a pickled egg. And um, I don't know why they aren't a part of this debate. Because are they not horrendous? They always look horrendous. They look like a jar full of eyeballs. It was a competitive pickled egg eating contest, actually, a long sure. time ago. Did you yeah. join in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sort of one in each cheek. Um, very, you- very hard to get down. To <coughs> how many did you... Because what is it? How many can you eat in what? In five minutes or something? Well, I think it was just until you you just stop or throw up. And I think the winner, um, you know, they come in those huge, well, they used to come in those huge jars, glass jars. You just sort of reach in. And I think one of our number got down 13. I think I managed to. Oh, my God. What an an amazing country this is. So uh, let's talk a little bit about Russia. The Sun reported last month that Putin has Parkinson's will step down in January, a story that was uh, immediately rubbished by experts. Is there any truth in it? Is there any sort of firm kind of knowledge about what's happening with Putin? Not that I know of. The last time I had a good look at him was yesterday. He wasn't moving. It was a still in one of these one of these uh, picture of one of these meetings he does with advisors where they're called in and they have to face him across a a sort of card table and uh, put their homework out. And in this case, it was it was maps of the Russian far north where they're all going to drill for oil and gas and um, the heck with the habitats of the muskoxen and the, and the reindeer that live there. He had his usual squinty, uh, sly smile. I was very optimistic initially when that story came out because, I, I mean, I've talked to many people over the years, including really interesting people like Gary Kasparov about when Putin will go and how he will go. And Kasparov and most say he will go eventually in a coffin. Uh, and I, But I thought, well, look, here's an alternative. He'll get <laughs> ill and, and he'll, he'll go, uh, the whole machine will, will find an alternative. Um, but, but I suspect the coffin is still the more likely uh, option. Well, you've written um, about how, how so much of, of you know, how, how Russia is at the moment is down to one man. It flows from Putin. Would you expect much to change? Is it, is it one of those countries, I suppose, that, you know, where, where it just sort of doesn't matter who's in charge because the system remains the same? Or really, does the system stem from him and whoever replaces him, it, it would be quite different? I'm still optimistic. I love Russia. The problem with Russia is that the the thinking non non groupthink population, who are some of the most creative, enterprising, hilarious people in the world, are are spread very thin outside Moscow and St Petersburg. So you can it's very hard. You you need decades of oppression to build up a sort of critical mass of protest that heaves the country from one system to the next. I do think the system that Putin has built. Is, is different from the Soviet system in that it, it won't last as long, uh, but it's similar in that it's essentially uh, controlled by securocrats like him and, and well, kleptocratic securocrats like him. That is the basis of the theory that he only goes in a coffin. So many people have their noses in the trough. So many people have an interest in him remaining in power for a long time and then a similar person um, uh, following him, that that's the single most likely outcome, I think, of, of Putin's demise whenever it comes. However, just one other thing on that. In former Soviet Central Asia, 
there are two interesting examples of the way it can go. Turkmenistan, the most hilarious dictatorship in the world, where uh, Niyazov has been replaced by someone whose name I can't remember. It's got a lot of syllables. It's a really tough one. And it has continued exactly in the same absurd personality cult uh, style. Uzbekistan, and these are the, these are relevant countries because they're built precisely in the Soviet image, was run for about 20 years following 1991 by uh, Islam Karimov, a really, really unpleasant man who used to boil Islamic uh, M- Muslim dissidents in, in uh, boiling water to death. And oddly, after his death, he's been replaced by a genuine reformer. And if, if they can do it uh, without the sort of thinking political class of Moscow and St. Petersburg, then I still think, I, I still think it's, it's conceivable in, in Russia. And that is why he, Putin is so nervous about what's going on at each end of his empire. The other the sort of, we talked about that the southern underbelly, but Belarus, and right at the other end in uh, Vladivostok, they've been um, and Khabarovsk, they've been they've been getting very uppity in the streets there. On the show this week, Labour have just abstained in the vote on the government's new tier system, but there's a tricky Brexit vote around the corner. What will Starmer decide? And is the government's real opposition the restive Tory backbenchers of the European Research Group and the COVID Recovery Group? Later, we'll be talking to Giles about the future of the UK's national security in the age of Brexit and President Joe, plus the looming melting iceberg of climate change. And in the special bonus segment for Patreon backers only, we'll be discussing the controversy over the ground. Is it monarchist propaganda, Republican propaganda, or just good telly? Before we start, a couple of reminders. It's your last chance to order gifts from podmarket.co.uk, our online Christmas market, which must close on Sunday the 6th of December, or you won't get your stuff in time. We've got mugs, t-shirts, face coverings, and even baby grows from Oh God, What Now and our partner podcasts. And UK delivery is guaranteed if you order by Sunday. And don't forget our live Zoom on Thursday, 17th of December at 8pm, exclusive to Patreon supporters. If you're already a backer, there's a reminder in your inbox. If not, search Patreon, oh God, what now, to sign up. Let's get cracking. On Tuesday, Boris Johnson suffered his worst revolt yet when 55 Tory MPs voted against the new tier system of lockdowns, with another 16 abstaining or not voting at all. Independent MP Jeremy Corbyn and 15 Labour rebels also voted against. Ashford MP Damien Green said that the decision to put Kent in Tier 3 had inspired more angry emails than anything since Dom's day trip to Barnard Castle. Who are these Tory malcontents? What do they want? And are they more of a headache for Johnson than the official opposition? So, Ros, who do you think has actually done the most to reshape and influence the government's COVID policy? Labour or these Tory backbenchers? Undoubtedly, the Tory backbenchers. Um, Labour has very little scope to change things simply because of the size of the Tory majority at 80 or so. The British parliamentary system hands a lot of power to the executive, and that is compounded during COVID because the health secretary effectively can make law by using emergency powers at this time. So in fact, the government doesn't even need the backbenchers if it really wants to push through lockdowns like this. Nonetheless, obviously, it does want them on side. Labour has been hammering away on corruption, and you've heard Keir Starmer do that a lot, but the trouble is not very successfully because most of the press aren't interested and they find Boris Johnson's personal story more compelling to follow. And there are about 50 MPs in the ERG, as far as I can tell, 70 in the CRG, and you've got people like Steve Baker in both. But there are also some uh, some people who are sort of moderate on Brexit in the CRG. 
how much do the memberships overlap? Should we be seeing them as, as sort of basically the same crew or are they, or are they distinct? They're the same crew in that they're fundamentally opportunistic and they spot a chance to shape policy. And they spot that chance because there's an absence of policy. With the ERG, it was Theresa May's failure to present a compelling enough Brexit vision for them that opened up that space for them to occupy. And now with COVID, they complain that Johnson doesn't have any views beyond Brexit. And so it's up to them, if you like, to go in and help make policy. And this is a remarkable opportunity that they have with the parliamentary majority as it is to do that. But there's a fundamentally libertarian perspective as well that that uh, some share, but not all of them. I mean, the libertarian perspective, for some reason, informs Brexit because of the uh, belief in absolute sovereignty that has an overlap, under, uh, as, as you would expect, with the belief in the freedom of the individual. So for some of them, that, that will be key. Um, and the ERG had fairly clear aims to research Europe. Are the CRGs... <laughs> Are the CRG's aims equivalently clear or is it part of it they, they, they get a kick out of rebelling? Well, they get a kick out of rebelling. And I mean, there's a lot of self-interest here as well. I mean, every uh, MP is going to weigh up how much will I suck up to keep my party in power and how much can I advance my own self-interest, which also ultimately means standing up for your own constituents' interests in the medium term as well, because you want them to re-elect you. Can I be bought off? What demands am I going to make in exchange for my loyalty? And this majority that I've talked about and the fact that Hancock can push through the legislation for lockdowns if he wants to anyway, opens up a space where there is no risk of bringing down the government, as was always the threat in the before Johnson uh, called the election and before he came to power. So are their aims clear? No, I mean, if you look at it in terms of what alternative do they want to lock down? No, absolutely not, because they can't really present a coherent alternative that says, well, this is what we can do to avoid the NHS being overloaded. This is what we can do uh, do to avoid thousands and thousands of people dying. But nonetheless, their fundamental uh, self-interest is what is propelling this. Ian, let's talk about Labour. They've reliably backed the government's lockdown policies so far, but they just abstained on this one. Um, Why did they do that? And do you think it was the right decision? I'm I'm not hugely keen on it, um, actually, and uh, it seems a little bit tawdry and uh, as if it sort of removes, you know, you're getting into a situation now where rules are coming in, that there is controversy over in the middle of a pandemic that you've removed really a sort of a a genuine sense of parliamentary support from. I mean, you don't even have the majority of MPs there because you've just taken out this, this whole big block. And on that basis, I think it puts us in kind of a a difficult position. However, it is a a logical thing for Starmer to do. If you're going to be ungenerous, you'd say, you know, he's just trying to hammer Johnson. It's the cynical, classic party politics. You're going to be a bit more generous. You would say, you know, he's basically firing a shot across the bows. He's putting him on notice going, look, you've got a big rebellion in your party. You're ultimately relying on, on my votes. If I'm going to vote against you, you're going to start losing these votes. You would have here. So you're going to have to start giving me concessions. And of those concessions, the kind of things that he's talking about, you know, we're coming up with a proper plan, you know, for public health to be managing during the pandemic, um, coming up with greater economic support. So if you're going to be really generous, you'd say, you know, this is him. He's not putting it in any danger, you know, actually passing this stuff. 
He's but he's trying to make sure he can get ring these concessions out of Johnson. Um, it looks like the next weapon he's going to use is trying to get hold of these secret sectoral dashboard data that they've got, which again he would find support for on the Tory benches with these malcontents. I, I don't think it's a very pretty spectacle to watch. I also think it underestimates how much power there is to a government being forced to rely on opposition votes, um, active opposition votes, to get its policies through. But it, it is rational on its own terms, and it may put him in a position where he can bring those concessions out of the Prime Minister. And it was, this was discussed on the podcast a bit last week, but, but it's a different panel. We, were, we weren't on it. So when the Brexit deal comes to the floor, Labour have four options, yes, no, abstain, or free vote. Um, which of those do you think is most likely? And is it the same one that you prefer? um there's a split at the top of the Labour party um and starmer is clearly from pretty much everything you read and pretty much everyone you talk to clearly is minded towards supporting the deal others around him the shadow chancellor for instance look like they're more keen on abstention there's a lot of noise for abstention mostly from remain but also from many parts of, of the labor party um, I think generally when you get splits like that, the most likely outcome, but by no means the necessary one, will be that Starmer goes with his own opinion. Do you need to support the deal? Um, I, I've got to tell you, I'm not hugely bothered by this. Um, it, it is, to me, this sort of symbolic representation of a deeper malaise. The, the, the deeper malaise is Labour does not have a voice. It does not have a story on, on a deal. It's got something to say about no deal. If it's no deal, they're just like, well, look, you fucked it up. You know, this is just like the COVID thing all over again. This is incompetence. You don't know what you're doing. It's a disaster. And, you know, that works out really easily for Labour. You totally see how they would approach that. If there's a deal, they don't really have much to say. And this deal is very, very bad. I mean, it's very, very bad anyway as as a hard Brexit deal, you know, without membership of the single market, without the customs union, without any kind of real cooperation in a variety of sort of, of bodies. But it's bad, even as a sort of FTA, it's not very good. You know, you would expect things to go much further than the kind of noise that we're getting on this deal. Um, and that goes for several areas. You know, if you would look at sort of mutual recognition of professional of qualifications, um, in a variety of areas, when you look at it, you think you should be pushing for more here. And the government intended to. It doesn't seem to be getting very far. So that's the bit that troubles me that they're not in a position to say to people, including leavers, especially leavers, this isn't about Brexit, whether it's right or wrong. This is about what kind of a job are they doing? Why are they making such a fucking shambles of it? What are the consequences of them doing that? Now, if they have that narrative, it seems to me that you can either abstain or you can vote for a deal. And you can justify it. You can say, well, we're voting for a deal. It doesn't mean we support this deal. We've just got to stop no deal. Or you can abstain, saying it's not that we have no opinion. It's just we can't possibly lend our support to something that looks this bad. But either way, to do that, you have to have a fucking narrative. You have to have a storyline. You have to be prepared to talk about this issue. Now, for months, it made sense that Starmer wanted to avoid it. But we're in the crunch time now. And he should have started talking about this about six weeks ago. If not then, then at least a month ago. And he should definitely be talking about it now. So it seems to me like you can go either way on that. But you do have to go one way. And you do have to actually start having some kind of full-throated voice on this. 
if you're going to represent both your voters in the country at large. Giles, a recent poll found that over 60% of voters thought Labour was split, which uh, makes sense. Uh, given the given the problems with Corbyn, but a similar number thought the Tories were divided, which you would not have expected just after the election. You know, just a year ago, when everybody was signing the Brexit pledge and all fully behind Boris, what's the what's the fault line here, and what can Johnson do about it? Well, maybe it's it's between true believers and phony Brexiteers, of whom, let's face it, Johnson two essays is one. Let's go back to the original freeze frame in the day after the referendum. He was the one who looked truly sick at heart. And I happen to know that the day after that, he went to see an old friend of his from school uh, and he was just asking, what on earth do I do now? And and that split between him and Gove, a true believer, is, is surely still evident in in the rebellion by call it what you will. Let, let's call it the CRG now. Um, the R stands for recovery, right? I mean, it, it would be nice if it, it, there has to be an R. It can, it can be recovery or research or reform. <laughs> Remix. But look, look, I actually don't think it's surprising that the Tories are split. I devoted our uh, Tortoise newsletter this morning to how Johnson's government is seen from outside. And by a good number, Ian will know more about this than I, but of his European counterparts, he's seen as a as a British Trump, fundamentally unserious, fundamentally unreliable. So you've got 70 or 80 of, of his backbenchers worried about whether he'll do what he's promised them he will do. That's the same split, frankly, that, that May faced throughout her premiership. And is there an obvious way for Labour to exploit this division um, while still seeming sort of responsible on, on the pandemic? It's a great question, and I don't know the answer, but I do know that I'm interested in the fact that almost unreported. We were told on Monday that yesterday, that is, uh, we were told on Monday that uh, on Tuesday, among all the many other things going on, legislation was going to be brought back to Parliament to start repealing the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, which is a manifesto pledge for, for the Tories. And could, correct me if I'm wrong, get us into a place before uh, the the next election is timetabled under the Fixed Term Parliament Act, uh, the kind of situation that we used to be in, um, in in which party splits and manoeuvring by the opposition can lead to a snap election, uh, which frankly I would like. And this brings us back to Brexit and what, what happens right now. I want to get back right away. I want an absolute cataclysm on the night of the 31st, the morning of, of the 1st. I've always thought that it's going to be the, the images of trucks piling up on both sides of the channel and the reality of food prices going up and the reality of exports going down that will actually make this populace as a whole see sense. But I'm, I, I guess I'm too optimistic. Um, I love the idea that like having loads of trucks on the channel and food prices going up is your version of optimism. What's your pessimism like? Well, I I think we just need a reality check. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been waiting a long time for that one. Now it's time for Underrated Overrated, where each week we separate the underdogs from the glory hogs. This week, it's Roz Taylor's turn. Roz, what's your category? My th- uh, category is shops, but I am going to be political about it, so don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to talk up 
shops like Aldi and Lidl, which I think are massively underrated in this country. That's because they sell cheap food and some of it is healthy. And you can't ask for all of, all of it to be healthy because that's not how the human race is. And at some point in the day, each day, that cheap food is discounted even further. And imagine how fantastic that is if you're struggling, as so many people are at the moment. And considering the pressure that these supermarkets have been under due to panic buying, um, it's incredible that they've managed to provide as much food for us and as many toilet rolls for us as they have in the past nine months. And especially when you consider that the great uh, supposed solution to uh, the problem, which is supermarket delivery, uh, online delivery slots, has quite often been impossible for many people to get hold of. They've done a kind of remarkable job of keeping things in stock. And they also have the effect of driving down prices at places like Tesco and Sainsbury's as well. So overall, that I think is a really good thing. And people who talk down supermarkets, I think, don't quite know what they would miss. And I'm going to get really unpopular now because I want to talk about corner shops and how I think they're a wee bit overrated in British mythology. Because I I use a corner shop a couple of times a week. I really like the bloke who runs it. We always have a small chat and he's got a fantastic range of incredibly heavy duty uh, sort of N, whatever they are, masks. And it's very impressive. But I And I was really glad to be able to get yeast during the first lockdown there because I'm a privileged member of the middle classes <laughs> who was desperate for something to do in that period. But the fact remains that corner shops are usually expensive. The fruit and veg is often old and stale. And usually the wine's crap too. Um, they are a great backup, but they are not actually what's keeping the country fed. And they're not what's going to somehow help to stop the disaster that I expect to happen in January and that we've just been talking about in terms of food shortages and lorries piling up. If anything can get us through that, if any logistics operation can get us through that disaster, it is going to be big supermarkets. So underrated so, multinational chains, overrated, plucky yeah. small business owners. Well, German origin <laughs> chains, can I point out? I'm sure like all, it, all the Corbyn people that attack me online, this is exactly what they think this podcast is like. <laughs> <laughs> I think actually I'm being quite um, populist here, left populist since you since you mentioned it here. Because <laughs> I'm championing cheap food rather than expensive food. But it's but it's capitalist cheap food. That's that's the problem. It's all capitalist. Corner shops are capitalist. Just just don't have a go at allotments. <laughs> Next up, our guest Giles Rattel is a Times veteran and Russia expert who's written books on everything from Spitfires to snow, and lately his interest in national security has been overshadowed by the existential threat of climate change. So he's equipped to talk about basically everything in the world. <laughs> I have a list here we're just going to go through. It's, it's just uh, everything in the world. Um, <laughs> Giles, what are the, I mean, there may be a long list here, but I suppose, what do you think are the most glaring national security challenges that the UK is going to face outside of the EU? And what has the government done to sort of address them, to prepare for the ones that are coming down the pipe? Well, look, there will always be the objective, real national security challenges, which crop up from time to time, rather than the ones that are sought. So I'm thinking about the 
the really sad, intractable stuff that France has been dealing with more than anybody else recently, but um, the UK has had to deal with as well. But the real security question for this government now is is about status post-Brexit. And there is a plan, and, and the plan is for security to compensate for lost status as we head into Billy Nomate's land off, off, off the... Um, of the North European coast. And we saw basically what the plan was last week when Johnson announced, uh, he said, about £16 billion in extra defence spending over the next four years. That's part of the plan, spend more. And the other part, very, very familiar, is remind the world that we're good at intelligence, remind the world about GCHQ, remind the world about James Bond, and remind the world that there is this intelligence-sharing reality that is the, that underpins the special relationship by the way i've from from washington I, i've had to sort of stand up the whole idea of the special relationship as as um, administrations come and go for times readers who love the idea of the special relationship and it's incredibly embarrassing um because it, it's it's just not special compared with the really important relationship between the us uh, and other big countries the trouble with the plan that has these two components is that, uh, I mean, a serious point about the military, the, the, the extra spending that Johnson wants to enact on the armed forces, is it's basically for kit rather than people. And quite literally, we're heading into a position where there may be new planes, new boats, but there probably won't be personnel to operate them. And they may be too complicated uh, there may, may not even be people who know how to operate them. The intelligence capabilities are there. GCHQs, I, don't, I know nothing about um, hacking, but they're apparently pretty good at it. But intelligence cooperation with the EU, our closest neighbours, will inevitably be curtailed. There are some very practical concerns about National Crime Agency no longer having access to Europol data if there's no deal. You know, the more that you hear going forward about the five eyes, you know, the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand sharing intelligence, the more we need to remember about the vast territorial area between those countries who are not part of the Five Eyes, um, and, and more particularly, nor is the EU. The real challenge is lost status. And I don't believe, uh, however much the government resorts to spending or old slogans, that they're going to compensate for that, uh, uh, using security as, as, as uh, an alternative to membership of the EU. Because let's remember, sorry, just one other thing. Kissinger was the first guy who said it, but it's been the case ever since that the uh, UK does have, has had a special role for the US over the past four decades, but only insofar as it's a gateway to Europe. Um, there were reports in October that the government was banking on a Trump win and only belatedly came around to the idea of him losing, even though Biden had been in, in the lead for months. Well, a story which surprised me. Uh, does, did that ring true to you? Did they, did they really no. uh, <laughs> not expect Biden to win? No, I, I, I don't believe that. I mean, there was that bizarre tweet which was supposed to have traces of, of Trump behind the word Biden. I don't think that's significant at all. I do think it's significant that Jim Messina, the um, former Obama pollster who subsequently did work for the Tories over here, was over here 
around the time of the US election and was very confident that um, Biden would win. And I think if I was aware of that, courtesy of Tortoise, then the, the, um, the, you know, Downing Street was clearly aware of that. So no, I don't buy that. They must have been planning for a Biden win from some time out. And of course, Johnson did do something smart, which was to get a quick phone call in before everyone else in Europe. So Trump is an isolationist who sees trade and diplomacy as zero-sum games. Biden is a, an internationalist who cares about things we care about, like Russia, uh, NATO, climate change. I mean, do you think his victory is is unalloyed good news for the UK? Is there any uh, downside? If you are a person who um, cleaves to the special relationship and resents any relative increase in uh, EU um, closeness to the US, then yes, there's a downside. Uh, Blinken, uh, who speaks fluent French, said in fluent French to um, uh, French television just recently that the EU is our essential partner. We want the EU to be strong and act with conviction. He's also, of course, famously described Blinken, who's going to be the next US Secretary of State, Brexit as the dog who caught the car and then the car reversed over the dog. Uh, and, and, and his <laughs> his boss, um, who is not anti-British, but, but is uh, pro-Irish to the extent that when asked during the campaign uh, for a quick two-way, can I say that? that that's okay, isn't it? A t- just a two-way, like a, a Q&A with the BBC. He says, who's it for? The BBC says, no, I'm Irish. There is a downside for the UK in that, as you say, the incoming administration is unequivocally sensible and pro-European, but for but that's only for the UK as a country that happens to have chosen Brexit. For us as people, it is unquestionably a great thing that the incoming administration is pro-European, doesn't regard climate change as a Chinese hoax, and uh, plans to take a coordinated federal response domestically to COVID and to uh, sort of get back with the WHO for a coordinated global response, not least to get vaccines to poorer countries that need them. Um, Ian, the government has just cut one major source of soft power, the foreign aid budget, temporarily, they say, but we'll see. And it keeps attacking another source of soft power, the BBC. Um, are the Tories just willing to weaken the UK's global position for domestic political reasons? Is it? Is it? Uh, are, they, are they even thinking about the the consequences? I don't know. You sometimes you, you don't get that impression from them, do you? I mean, when you look at what they've been doing um, with the provisions on international law, well, sorry, rather the provisions on being able to break international law. It's hard to get the sense that this is an administration that thinks too deeply about the consequences of what it's doing, because even in the immediate consequence, which is worsening the trade negotiations with Europe, beyond even thinking what other countries who are uninvolved in Brexit would be thinking by virtue of this and how it might make it harder for us to do trade deals, make us more suspicious. And they just don't give that impression at all. Then one of those big sacrifices, kind of ephemeral really, broad, like watercolour sacrifices that we've made over the last few years is the image of Britain as this sort of pragmatic, moderate, reasonable, you know, diplomatic country, which was then, which was sort of typified. Do you remember that New Yorker front cover where they just, they did Big Ben, but it looked like there was just some mad bird spinning out of it. And you just think, well, that's sort of the replacement. And that, you know, we can exaggerate how deeply entrenched that view has become. I mean, we're obviously going to be super 
aware of it in in lots of countries where Brexit, the, the idea of it hasn't been followed very closely, they would still have those kind of background assumptions about the way that this country operates. But generally, this this idea of somewhere that plays by the rules and that actually works in international organisations that is degrading quite thoroughly. Even though the government tries to pursue it in other areas, I mean, you might look at you know some of its stems, for instance, on the sort of climate change, where it's actually more respectable. I mean, the way it behaves at the WTO has been broadly more respectable than the way it works here. But of course, people do have televisions, they do read newspapers, and they can see the manner in which it's behaving in Europe and come to conclusions then about the manner it would behave with them when it goes into negotiations. Um, Ross, how many of the threats to our national security these days uh, arrive in disguise, like Russian organised vaccine disinformation? I think the Russian case has been particularly interesting because Russia has slowly impinged on our consciousness in Britain, I think, as a threat, which obviously it wasn't in the immediate years after the uh, end of the Soviet Union. And gradually, it has. Uh, there's been a, obviously a, quite a large population of Russian uh, migrants living in London who have had an influence. We don't know how much influence over national politics, but we increasingly see them uh, present in our national media and now beginning to occupy the House of Lords as well. So one of the things I wondered, and I actually wanted to ask Giles about, was to what extent we have let Russia creep in, uh, a sort of Russian, malevolent Russian forces creep into our society unnoticed and really fail to to identify that as a threat. And therefore, it's, it, it's only now that we're beginning to realise, and with the most immediate crisis being the problem of getting people vaccinated, the the challenges this could pose for national security because COVID is a, in itself a national security threat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the short answer is to a big extent, but let's let's be uh, clear about the distinction between uh, misinformation online put out principally by the GRU, Russian Military Intelligence, which has many tentacles. The best known of them is the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, which which has been moving around St. Petersburg, but also has sort of outposts in in many Russian cities with universities, with underemployed people who who are grateful for a wage to spew out, in, in some cases, some fairly sophisticated uh, uh, misinformation on, on social media. I think that's a real threat. There is a bit of a red herring, though, which is, which is people. Let's remember that uh, there are two categories of Russian individuals who've come to the UK since 1991. There are oligarchs who basically stole their money, bought enormous houses on Bishop's Avenue, Kensington Palace Row, etc., and definitely deserve their unexplained wealth orders and deserve a, a lot of the uh, suspicion thrown at them. There, are, there is a, a separate uh, group of uh, Russians, many of whom uh, gather nowadays around... Uh, the Open Russia Foundation, not far from the BBC, uh, set up by Khodorkovsky, uh, who, of course, was originally an oligarch himself before being jailed for 10 years. And they are, um, uh, many of them, uh, exiles thrown out because um, they dared to defy Putin. Um, In in between, there are some people who've attracted a lot of suspicion because they gave money to, to the Tory party, who are not actually stooges for Putin. They are uh, in in most cases, people who got lucky have money, but again, are in London because Putin made it impossible for them to stay in Moscow. 
And then again, just finally, there's the the unbelievable sort of retro willingness to use poisons against individuals. You know, I mean, you, you can't make that stuff up, but it happens. Um, Jars, your latest book is called uh, Snow, A Scientific and Cultural Exploration. Is it, was it your sort of interest in that which has sort of led you down this path of writing more about climate change? No, it's the other way around. Well, actually, let, let me just think. I, I regard myself as a selfish environmentalist. And I think that if more people were, then we'd be more likely to solve some of the problems. Um, I'm sorry, this is going to sound really sort of niche socioeconomic. Um, <laughs> uh, grant this guy absolutely no sympathy or, or audience. But I, I, I love, I've always loved snow and I've loved it for um, skiing. That's what I live for. That's how I spend all my money. Not that I have any left because I've spent it all on skiing. Literally, I remortgage every few years in order to take my family skiing. I, I love snow and it makes me very, very sad when it stops falling. And actually, uh, that is why I wrote the book. Because when you go to the mountains, whether it's in summer or winter, and there's less and less of it, and it's the one thing that makes you happy, then you just wish that we could all uh, get together and do something about it. Which is why there is a short passage in the book about a sort of fantasy version of Davos, where instead of all the plutocrats chatting about whatever they chat about in their um, windowless um, conference tents, they they go up the mountain mountain they go up the mountainside where um, Thomas Mann wrote about all the snow that used to fall there, and they see it and they fall in love with it and they think let's do something about it. Do you think? I mean, I, you can't imagine Trump. Uh, falling in love with snow and doing something about it. Do you think that without him, world leaders will be able to make more significant progress on climate change? Or are there sort of much bigger, maybe less talked about obstacles to international cooperation? I mean, how much does his departure change things? I think it changes things massively. I think usually I'm a sort of believer in vast impersonal forces being more significant than than individuals. But uh, this is an arena in which Biden can do something with an executive order, even if he has doesn't have Congress behind him, even if, you know, both those Georgia Senate seats go to the Democrats in January, go to the Republicans in January. Uh, he, can, he can reverse Trump's position by 180 degrees with executive orders that will last at least four years. And uh, so at a stroke, you have the world's richest economy, which was an obstacle to any progress uh, within the Paris framework or anywhere else on climate change, on side with Europe, with the UK. Uh, And so at a stroke, China, for example, uh, uh, as a foot dragger in this arena, is much more isolated. Now, uh, uh, you saw at around the time that it became clear that Biden had won, China for the first time made an undertaking, um, make of it what you will, to get to net zero by 2060. And also, for the first time, Putin said to his officials, will you please take a look at this net zero thing? Because it's embarrassing uh, to go to a COP conference and be the only holdout. Uh, It wasn't, you know, Trump gave them cover, but there's much less cover now. Um, And finally, one of the kind of big differences, although Johnson and Trump are often compared, one of the the big differences is that Johnson does actually believe in climate change uh, and uh, would at least talks about doing something about it. The government's announced that it's shaking up farming policy with an eye to conservation and fighting climate Mm. change. What do you make of this government's record uh, overall? For 
competence, obviously, is D minus. Um, but then the, the challenges that it's faced this year, let, let's be let's be clear, are serious. On the the new farming policy, so the the record leads us to doubt whether the Garden of Eden that they propose by rewarding farmers for basically wilding their land rather than just sitting on it, we, we should doubt that that will come about. Nonetheless, it's good policy from an environmental point of view. There's there's solid science that says the single uh, best way that a place like the UK can sequester carbon is to is to wild the land as they're doing at NEP in, in Sussex, which is a great place to go and see it in action uh, to protect your, your peatlands and that kind of thing. Also, I, I salute I salute him for bringing forward by ten years the deadline for phasing out petrol and diesel cars. Um, of course, in global terms, it's a small number of cars, it's a small amount of carbon. The best you can do in these circumstances is set an example. There is the separate issue of whether, uh, by the structure of your economy, you're actually simply exporting your your carbon footprint by requiring. Uh, uh, less economically developed countries to do your manufacturing for you. But there are solutions to that too. And it's the kind of thing that I hope will get discussed when COP26 finally happens next year in, in, in Glasgow. Finally, it's time for But Your Emails. Emails are like postcards for the now generation. So get your questions to us early by backing us on Patreon. You won't even have to buy a stamp. What's incredible about this section is every time you introduce it, you have to make some gag about the existence of emails. It's weird. And your voice goes weird every time you do it. That's why why I do it. Um, (laughs) I get a chance to do that voice. (laughs) This week's question uh, is actually relevant to something that Charles mentioned earlier. Um, Ian Miles says... Boris Johnson vowed to bin fixed-term elections. A parliamentary committee has convened to sort out what to do. Were the reasons for the Fixed-Term Parliament Act valid? And what do the panel think should happen? Ian, was it was that was that a good act? Um, would you be happy to see it go? I mean, no, look, I, I thought it was a good idea at the time. Um, and I think our experiences since it was passed showed that it wasn't really working terribly well. I mean, mostly because, you know, if, if a government wants to hold an election there's ultimately very little that can be done to solve them because the opposition's not going to be in a position where it's, it's fighting against an election. We, and we saw that very crudely, you know, in, in the lead up to the 2019 election. Um, so ultimately, you're looking at something that doesn't really fulfill the function that it was supposed to attain. Now, the reason that I liked it in the first place is because I don't really understand how it should be allowed that you have a prime minister who can pick the time of the election for the, for the moment that, that most suits them. That seems to be a problem, but the solution that was found to it hasn't really worked. So, I mean, it's going, it, it is, whichever way you look at it, it, it is an executive power grab. Of, of course it is, because what it is, is giving them the power of timing and power of timing in politics is a tremendous power to have within certain limitations. Of course, it doesn't mean they it's pick exactly when the election is. So, look, I mean, I, I can't pretend to be that happy that they're going through with it. But look, it, it was a, a pretty shoddy piece of legislation in the end. And the data set to demonstrate that has been the years since it was passed. Yeah, Ross, is this just an example of something that just wasn't, you know, whether it's there or not, doesn't seem to make much difference because it clearly uh, it clearly wasn't working. You know, it was just it was pretty wild, I think, in May this year when people were saying this should have been, you know, the first election since 2015. <laughs> uh, you know, David, you know, without, you know, it should have been Cameron uh, going into uh, the 
2020 election. So does it matter if it's there or not? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, for the t- same reasons Ian has, has talked about, that it's an aspiration that you should aim to have a deadline. Uh, it's what other countries tend to do and we, we tend not to do. The problem was that the FTPA was brought in basically to try and ensure that the coalition government that came in in 2010 was kind of held together mm. to try and ensure that that was made as stable as possible. And in the event, of course, we haven't really, <clears throat> unless you count the DAP, DUP, we haven't really had a coalition government since. So its usefulness on that score has has diminished, although it would be lovely if we had more coalition governments, because I think they're a good thing. They're just not really compatible with our constitution. But it's a crafty bit of legislation that I don't really like as well, because one of the things it does is it means that prerogative powers, which of course used to dissolve parliament, call election, won't be able to be reviewed by the courts, um, as they were when Johnson decided to prorogue parliament last year. That's basically Johnson wanting to get one back at the Supreme Court. It also, uh, as a matter of fact, extends the limit of the next election. Normally, it would have been uh, May 2024, you know, when we would have been aiming for the next election. Now it's going to be December 2024, which is handy if you're in power. Mm. So, no, I don't like it much. Mm. So, ironic, isn't it? Because that's exactly what they did when they passed this. It was supposed to be four-year terms. And suddenly it was like, oh, maybe we'll just chuck another little bit of time on there. Is it, you know, whoever's in a position to pass this stuff is like, oh, let's just see if we can extend this time period for a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't working, um, and it sort of condemned us to five years of this government, and for those reasons, I'm glad if it goes. That was very pithy. Lovely. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Nobody likes it. Sorry, Fixed Term Parliament Act. (laughs) If you're listening. Um, So that's the show. My thanks to Ian. Oh, thank you very much. Roz. Thank you. And our guest, Giles Wattel. Thank you for having me. I sorry I droned on so much. <laughs> That's all right. It was, it was lovely to have you droning. <laughs> Remember, you have until this Sunday, December the 6th, to get your orders in for Oh God, What Now? merchandise at podmarket.co.uk. And on December 17th is our Christmas Zoom special, full to the brim with debate, drinks and tinsel. Sign up while you can because there's only 1,000 spots. Now for our remix theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello, and thanks from me to James Sinclair, Kevin West, and Adrian Skilling. Thanks very much from me to Lawrence Donaghy, Tony, <gasps> so exciting, and Jane Pickett. And thanks from me to David James, Paul Dupree's, and Frank. Take care, and we'll see you next time. Ah, Borja, Stottipere was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ros Taylor and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Now it's time for our extended remix, especially for Patreon backers. The fourth season of The Crown has generated more buzz than the first three put together, thanks to the killer combo of Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana. Historians and fans have complained about invented scenes and what they see as unfair portrayals. Simon Jenkins thinks it's as bad as fake news. Prince Charles's friends have called it trolling with a Hollywood budget. And Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden has written to Netflix asking for a disclaimer to make clear that it's fiction and not a fly-on-the-wall documentary filmed over 70 years. So... 
Do we like it? And is there actually a case for clarifying what is and isn't true in historical dramas? Roz, are you a newbie like me, or have you been following the amazing adventures of Her Royal Highness since day one? Um, I have actually been following it for some time. I quite enjoy it. It's my it's my guilty pleasure. It's basically just a soap, fundamentally. But I have been watching it since the first series, yeah. And I know a few people who won't watch it because they oppose the monarchy. But uh, to me, that's like not watching The Queen's Gambit because you don't like chess or Breaking Bad because you dis- <laughs> disapprove of meth dealing. Um, do, do you find the sort of politicisation of this show odd? That- no, not at all. I don't. I don't find it. I think it's um, it, it's it's a very good thing that it's politicised. It it forces us to confront what we think about the monarchy, which I think is as a Republican, I think is desperately important thing to do. As it grows closer to the present, um, it's always going to be the case that what it covers becomes more controversial because previously all the politicians and most of the people involved were all dead, and now some of them are alive. So, mm. you know, there, there is inevitably more con- uh, controversy. The thing about the series four is that that in particular comes before there's a settled version of history on which we can all agree. You know, we all know what we think about Elizabeth I just about. We all know what we think about Henry VIII. We pretty much all know what we think about Queen Victoria. But I'm sure that wasn't the case when they were alive. It takes a while for the image, if you like. And that was a taster of the expanded Patreon edition of Oh God, What Now? If you want to hear the rest, and why wouldn't you, then search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast, sign up, and you'll get access immediately. We hope you enjoy it. See you next week.